Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done a great many of them now, over 500. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. Well, you see them categorized in several different ways. Um, my guest today is Mark Pitstick, M-A-D-C. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Ed. You're welcome. Um, Mark has over 47 years' experience and training in hospitals, pastoral counseling settings, mental health centers, and private practice. His training includes a pre-medical degree, graduate theology pastoral counseling studies, master's in clinical psychology, and doctorate in chiropractic health care. He also has provided suicide prevention counseling and education to many people. Mark became aware of clairaudient experiences at age 10 and has since been blessed with numerous miracles, revelatory, and spiritually transformative experiences. After working in hospitals with many suffering and dying adults and children, he was motivated to find sensible, evidence-based answers to the questions that many people ask. Who am I? Why am I here? What happens after I die? Will I see my departed loved ones again? Is there a God? If there is one, why is there so much suffering? And how can I best live during this brief earthly experience? Mark has written a number of books, including Soul Proof, Compelling Evidence That You Are an Infinite Spiritual Being, The Eleven Questions, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Life, Death, and the Afterlife, and Greater Reality Living, Integrating the Evidence for Eternal Consciousness into Your Daily Life with Gary Schwartz, Ph.D., Mark was the executive producer for the Soul Proof documentary film, a 93-minute movie featuring interviews with people who had evidentiary experiences. And he also hosted Solutions, a nationally syndicated radio show about practical spirituality, and Ask the Soul Doctors, interviewing top consciousness experts. Mark is certified in past life regression therapy. And... We're almost done with this. He directs the Soul Phone Foundation that supports research and development of technology to communicate with post-material or deceased persons. He also assists in the research conducted by Dr. Gary Schwartz and other scientists at the Laboratory for Advances in Consciousness and Health at the University of Arizona. Mark founded Greater Reality Living Groups to help prepare people for the great news that life after death has been definitively demonstrated scientifically by replicated multi-center studies. He has several websites, but the main one I'll mention here is soulproof.com. And of course, I'll link to them all on his page on batgap.com. So Mark, I thought we'd start by um, sketching over your early life and what kind of led you to where you are today. One thing as I read your bio is you went from medical school to theology school to this to that. And as I listened to some of your recordings, I got the impression that you would try something and think, well, this isn't ultimately what I'm looking for. There's something missing here. And so then you'd try something else. So you were kind of a seeker at heart and not satisfied with conventional status quo security in life, but you really wanted to find something deeper. Exactly. And let me start with the earliest information I have, Rick. When I was six years old, my parents were showing me a beautiful sunset, and I told them it reminded me of God. And they only told me that 20 years later when I was in theology school. 
Now it's brought up Lutheran, so it was always God, the Father, this and that, and you know the big guy in the sky. So they they were puzzled. There was really no reason I would have equated a beautiful sunset with the divine. So that was the first suggestion. I wasn't your usual earthling. Um, throughout my life, I felt a little uh, alienated. It seemed like I had to work to figure out how to be a good human. Don't we I mean, all? I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a little kid, and I was watching a football game, which I love. But I thought, gosh, you know, if we just take 10% of the, of the money spent on this silly sport, really, uh, to feed the poor. And so thoughts like that. Yeah. Uh, my family would be watching. I, I, let me just interrupt there. I saw Buckminster Fuller speak one time, and for some reason he brought up the topic of boxing. And he said, people spend so many millions of dollars to watch two men destroy each other's thinking machines. Yeah. And by the way, he was one of my early teachers. Critical Thinking was the book, and I learned so much from him. Little old Bucky. So um, my parents and, and brother and sister would watch sitcoms you know, with the canned laughter, and it just drove me crazy. So I would go to a room as far away as possible, and I'd just like, oh, I think I'll get on the floor and stretch. And then years later, discovered those were yoga postures. And the same way I would lapse into meditative stage really easily, whereas I was bouncing a ball and catching off steps. One time I was doing that, I was thinking, and then I looked up and it was like, it's dark outside. You know, I mean, it's getting dark. I must have been doing this for two hours. Uh, same way with I would be uh, starting to fall asleep and I would experience my consciousness. I didn't know about that word at the time, just traveling through space. And no matter how far I went, I would never encounter any walls, bright lights and so on. At first, it was a little scary. And after a while, it was very pleasant. So those are some of the things that made me think of. I was a little different. But it really came to a head when I was 19. I started working in hospitals as a part-time respiratory therapist. And they gave me training. So I was doing things then by age 20 that only physicians can do now. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, arterial blood gas punctures, putting the breathing tube down to the lungs. So each shift, usually night shift in the ER ICU, I was with one or more dying people. And seeing that, especially little children, just drove me to my knees. Everything I had believed in, you know, God was all-knowing, all-loving, all-caring, like all-powerful. Well, if that's true, we have a few problems here. So that's why then I made the shift to theology school. I wanted to find out for myself, what game are we playing here? Is the idea of an afterlife and a God just kind of like Easter Bunny and Santa Claus or not? Yeah. I remember hearing you say you had started meditating around the age of, what was it, 17 or something? 21, actually. I oh, saw 21. a poster. I went to school in Ohio State undergrad. And here's this little brown man, you know, sitting in this position. And I'd never seen a person from India at that age. Which little and brown man it. was that? Uh, that was uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Oh, okay. There you go. I was a TM teacher for decades. And I saw that and a voice said, you're supposed to do that. And it was like $200, which is a king's ransom when you're in undergrad. But I did it, and I've been meditating in one form ever since, same way with yoga. Yeah. Um, as I was listening to your recordings, I remember hearing you say you had a really blowout awakening experience at one point. I forget how old or when that was, but it was really profound. You know what I'm talking about? Probably my own experience, 1997. Oh, yeah, so that I was it. 44. Yeah. 
I had been doing some intense hatha yoga taught by Swami Satchidananda. So every morning I would get up at five and do about an hour and a half of breathing, pranayama, asanas, postures. Well, this morning it was uh, the dead of winter in Ohio. All the windows were closed. My wife and uh, two girls were upstairs sleeping. I was working with the mantra Om and silently repeating it, a single candle in front of me. All of a sudden, I heard Om as if being sung by hundreds of people all around me. I mean, I thought if I open my eye, I expect to see the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, but I, I don't think they do that number. I knew that if I broke my state, this could go away. So I just stayed with it. Oh, next bright light. You know, if you are in a darkened room with just a single candle with your eyes closed, pretty much you see the black and back of your eyelids. Well, now my vision, internal vision, was filled with the brightest white light, and it was just so wonderful. Next, I felt unimaginable love and understanding. Just like anything I'd ever done, thought, said, I was understood. And I wasn't condemned or judged. And at this point in my life, you know, I wasn't totally at that point where I understood all these things. That was so powerful that tears started trickling down my cheeks. I keep up with that, you know, oh, I'm cross-legged and all that. Next, I felt a tingling. When we were kids, we used to get kicked by touching our tongue to a 9-volt battery. Oh, yeah, well, I used to do that. <laughs> this is about four or five times that. It was a tingling throughout my whole body. And then finally, the most wonderful fragrance you can imagine. No source for it. I burned incense like an hour before. And just this indescribable smell. Put all that together. I stayed with it for a few minutes. And I just started laughing. Oh, my God, you know, and I couldn't stand anymore. I just just laughing. So, uh, you know, whether that's Kundalini rising or seeing the light, but that was definitely a transformative experience for me. How long have you been meditating with Om now? Well, ever since age 21. I mean, not every day, but most days. Again, it's just something I lapse into. You know, in the Bible, it talks, it says, pray without ceasing. And in the beginning, I was like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. But now I just joyfully do it, whether I first wake up, going to sleep, driving. Uh, I don't see any separation at all between myself and source energy. Nice. I was curious because you mentioned Marisha. He used to warn people against meditating with Om. He said it was a recluse mantra, and if you used it, it would make you more reclusive. You'd start losing relationships and, and your money and things like that. But I don't know if I've ever seen any evidence for that. And I've been meditating with a mantra that has Om as part of it for the last 20 years. Before that, for about 30 years without Om in my mantra. And it's been the most successful period of my life. So I'm just curious whether you notice any kind of deleterious effect in terms of your relative, any tendency to make yourself to become more reclusive or something. I think I've done a good job keeping grounded and centered and, and being uh, what Ram Dass calls an impeccable warrior, you know, covering all your different callings in life. You know, I was given the what are called Bija mantra, yeah, two different ones. But I reasoned that my goal has always been to reach as many people as possible around the world. And not everyone can afford a few hundred dollars sure. to get their special personalized mantra. <laughs> and so that's one reason I stuck with good old Ohm. Yeah, that's fine with me. Just curious. 
I also have a mantra from Amma, and she says that charging for meditation is like a mother charging her baby for breast milk or something. It should just be, you know. Yeah, I have several dear friends who are devotees, and they just they tell me such wonderful stories about her. Yeah, you mentioned that you're certified in past life regression therapy. Is that Michael Newton's um, certification? Brian Weiss. Brian Weiss. Okay. I'm not as familiar. I've read all of Michael Newton's books, but I'm not as familiar with Brian. I heard you mention him, though. At the time, uh, Michael was a guest of mine around the year 2000, and I read all his books, in fact, four times, which I've never done with any author. Yeah. But every time I read them, I learned more. It just rang so true. So I had an opportunity very early on when he started training other therapists to do the Lives Between Lives training. But I just didn't feel like I was supposed to do that. At that time, it's like, you know, I've done so many things. It's time to put this together and, and apply it more. One thing I love about this topic that we're discussing today and about books like that and all the various near-death experience books, you know, James Ron Prague and Betty Eady and Danny and Brinkley and all the rest, is that when you read them and kind of just put your awareness on that whole topic, it almost seems to thin the veil between this side and the other side, so to speak. You just kind of gain this deeper confidence or certainty that life is a, a vast continuum and that the, this life that we're in is just one little chapter of it. That becomes to be kind of like your de facto mentality after a while. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita that says, even a little of this dharma removes great fear. And I, I think even a little appreciation of the fact that life is a continuum and that we don't die when the body dies, there must be a deep underlying fear if you think otherwise. If you're walking around thinking, well, when this meat puppet ends, that's the end of me. And to have a complete reversal of that perspective, my perspective has been reversed for so long, I can't remember thinking otherwise, but it must be a tremendous relief for people. Yeah, great point you're bringing up and a few comments on that. First of all, decades ago, I uh, learned again from Ram Das the chant, Gate, Gate, Pada, Gate, Pada, Sum, Gate, Bodhi, Swaha. And I've done that for hundreds and hundreds of hours. So I think that's part of it. And, and the translation is go out, in other words, become enlightened, go even further, go even further than that, and you realize you're the Buddha, far out. Uh, so I think that when that's a person's intent and prayer, it happens, and life supplies us with experiences that reinforce that. Like you say, after a while, it's your set point. Um, Dr. Schwartz and I are considering creating a some sort of measurement instrument for degrees of certainty of afterlife because we have experienced ourselves. I mean, we thought when we started working together four years ago, we knew as much as we could know that life is eternal. But when we have, and I'll share some of these once we get talking about the soul phone project and the research, when we have some of these just mind blowing experiences, we're like, Oh my God, that just took me up, you know, three clicks. It's a lot of fun. When you say some sort of instrument, it would be something, some psychological test, like the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory or something, that you'd answer a whole bunch of questions and it would measure your yes. degree of certainty? Yes, that, okay. that would be one way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think is very important is um, paradigm shift and the, the paradigm that 
govern society for the most part. And the overturning of that paradigm, since the paradigm that I'm alluding to is the materialist one, where we think that consciousness is merely a product of the brain, and when the brain dies, consciousness dies. And if if all of modern science and technology are fundamentally based on that paradigm, and thus all of the technological, <clears throat> well, I want to say science and technology, all everything that impacts our world, no wonder the world's so screwed up, you know? I mean, no wonder there's so much environmental degradation and so many other problems, um, economic inequities and so on. It, it seems to me that if, if we truly underwent a, a complete um, up- upending of that paradigm, to placing consciousness where it belongs at the foundation, everything else would sort of fall into place over time, and um, the ripple effect would be huge. Yeah. What's well, happening right now, uh, Dr. Schwartz founded the Academy for Advances in uh, Post-Materialist Science. A couple of years ago, they have 250 now scientists, physicians, and university professors whose working assumptions is that consciousness is primary. So we're getting there. So not all scientists disbelieve in the post-material possibilities, but as you say, most do. Yeah, there's also a thing over in England called the Galileo Project along similar lines set up by a guy named, uh, I think it's David Lorimer. And I'm going to ask you a question in a little while written by a friend of mine, Mark Gober, who wrote a book called An End to Upside-Down Thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. He sent me several questions he wanted me to ask you. But anyway, I think that's very important. I'm curious, um, you've alluded to Gary several times. We haven't really explained who he is and what, what you guys do down there in Arizona, but are you guys in any way affiliated with Stuart Hameroff and the people who organized that consciousness conference in Tucson? Great question. Um, one which we're asked often. Uh, Gary knows him since Stuart is a professor there at University of Arizona, but they've not worked together on this soul phone project. However, I think they worked together earlier on energy healing. Gary's been at University of Arizona for 32 years. Yeah, it's interesting. There's so much interest in consciousness in, in Tucson. There was some other thing I came across recently with that it also seemed rather academic, and it was this whole other exploration into consciousness. So I don't know, what is it? There's some peyote in the water down there or something? I don't know, but it's a cool town. You know, it's surrounded on all four sides by mountains, and it's just incredibly beautiful. It's an oasis in the desert. I don't know if you've been there. I have. You, back, yeah, back in, I taught meditation there back in the 70s. It was lovely. Okay. Yeah, you drive down from Phoenix, and you're through the desert, and all of a sudden you see trees and grass and so on. So, yeah, I like it. I spent a lot of time there the last few years. Good. Well, let's, let's get into talking about what you're doing there with Gary Schwartz, unless there's anything else you want to cover before we get into that. Nope. Sounds good. All right. Let's get into it. So first of all, it's important for your listeners, viewers to understand that what you're about to hear is based on university-based research. As you know, we live in a time where people think they can say anything with or without any evidence behind it. So we work really hard to make sure that we have the utmost integrity and ethics behind all this. Dr. Schwartz just wrote a book called The Case for Truth with an attorney, Alan Borey, and he is finalizing a book called Extraordinary Claims Require Extraordinary Evidence, which is based on a statement by Dr. Carl Sagan. So want to make that really clear. So the two first mind-blowing statements before I talk about Dr. Schwartz's credentials and so on, more about the project, are number one, 
life after death has now been definitively demonstrated scientifically. You understand that a, a true scientist will never say 100% proof, but Dr. Schwartz has, as a scientist, 99.9% certainty that afterlife uh, exists. Secondly, that through a series of replicated, and these are all uh, controlled, replicated, MOLA Center study, peer-reviewed, published journal experiments, uh, we have demonstrated early communication with post-material persons, which, as you said earlier, is our preferred term for the deceased, the departed, instead of spirits, because it turns out that those who have passed, the only thing they lose is what you referred to earlier, the meat. Meat puppet. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. Uh, it's much less than 1% of yeah. who what we are. So that's the great news. And this communication, by the way, is focused on two areas. First of all, so people can have contact with their, quote, departed loved ones who aren't really departed, but just as important so that we can build the quality and quality of communication with some post-material luminaries, scientists, inventors, educators, responsible leaders, etc., who want to help us heal our world. And the ramifications of that are unimaginable in every field for the positive. Yeah, and a little bit later, we'll talk about who some of those luminaries are and how you have been in touch with them, by what means you're confident that you have actually communicated with them. I have your slides presentation loaded here, and I think the next one is a little bit more about Gary Schwartz himself mm-hmm. and his credentials. You want to just introduce him a little bit more? Sure. His dad was a Columbia University trained chemist, master's chemist. So he was certainly, there was intelligence among his parents, mom, a school teacher. Gary had two near-death experiences when he was a little boy. And my theory is that his control valve, you understand how much of what the central nervous system does is inhibit sensory input. If we could indeed see and hear everything that's going on around us, we couldn't function. In India, they're called God intoxicants. They see too much, too fast of the total reality. At any rate, he was a prodigy just about anything he did. I mean, he self-taught seven instruments and was in really good bands when he was a teenager. So whatever he went for, he did really well. Uh, Undergrad in Cornell, master's in clinical psych at Harvard, PhD in psychophysiology at Harvard, Harvard professor, tenured Yale professor, where he and a couple other docs founded the field of behavioral medicine. I mean, that statement right there is huge. Behavioral medicine, that's a whole giant field. And Gary started it, and he only told me that like two and a half years after we joined forces. He said, yeah, I got it started, and I let somebody else take it from there. I was interested in some other things. That's what he does, plant seeds. Um, as you mentioned, he's the director of the Laboratory for Advances in Consciousness and Health at the University of Arizona. He has written over 450 scientific papers, which is a huge number for any scientist. So the point is, he's the real deal as far as science, and that's one reason we can trust what he's doing. Now, the other thing is about his work is that he has had wonderful team members. Sometimes they're hired experts. Sometimes they're graduate and postgraduate students from the university. But electrical engineers, 
software specialists, optical physicists, as well as evidential mediums, and we can talk more about that, but mediums who have been evaluated and found to be highly evidential who feed him bits of information from these post-material luminaries. So he's, he's had a wonderful team put all that together is how he's been able to achieve what he has. So you guys have been working on something you call the soul phone. Yes, that's an overarching term. And in retrospect, we maybe shouldn't have used it because, you know, people keep saying, well, when can I call my loved ones? You know, and we're like, huh? Uh, so it was always meant from the beginning to be an umbrella term for four different devices. The first is the soul switch, and that's what I referred to we've used so far with these post-material persons. A switch is like a key on your laptop, for example. You push the L key, that's a yes for that. For the others, it's a no. And it's amazing what you can do with just that yes, no, on, off communication. Sidebar, when I worked in hospitals, I worked a lot with people who are paralyzed from the waist down, from the neck down. And sometimes the cord injury would be so high, they couldn't talk. The only thing they could do was blank. And whatever the system was, blank once for yes, two for no. So I was very comfortable with uh, the capabilities of binary communication. Now, the, the electronic, or I just call it the soul switch, was never envisioned as a commercializable device. I mean, as some people would want it. Um, you know, you can ask questions of your loved ones and get yes or no answers. But what we're shooting for, for the first commercializable device, is the soul keyboard. Forty or so electronic switches in series. Dr. Schwartz anticipates that the first keyboard will be about four foot wide, three foot deep, but it will allow texting and typing with those living in another dimension. Okay, let me stop you here because we're also going to mention soul voice and soul video, and then, and we need to probe into this a little bit more than I have yet heard you probe. So soul switch, I've, I've heard you explain how that works in terms of asking certain questions and then and somehow or other people from the other side are able to give some kind of signal that it's interpreted as either a yes or a no. Okay, but a keyboard where you have 40 different keys, that gets a lot more complicated. Give us some idea of how that would work. Maybe it would help, Rick, if we go back to the seven ways that Dr. Schwartz has measured the presence of spirit, because that will give your viewers more of an idea about the qualities of people who passed on their physicality, their light, electromagnetic field, and so on. We're going then to slide number 13. So again, these are experiments that Dr. Schwartz has done over the last 11 years in an attempt to show the presence of spirit, show their ability to send signals, and always with the interest in producing a commercializable device. So the first one... And by commercializable, you, you don't mean that you just want to make a lot of money with it. You mean you want something that people could actually afford because your stuff costs tens of thousands of dollars and nobody would be able to afford it. It's very clunky and expensive. I mean, you know, some of the first computers were not very effective at all. They were much weaker than the little phone you now carry in your pocket, but they filled a whole room. They used up huge amounts of electricity, had great big fans cooling them and so on. So, you know, we're kind of at that stage in terms of this technology. 
Yes, thank you for clarifying that. By commercializable, I mean that our overarching goal is to allow anyone who can afford a cell phone to afford a soul phone. Right. And eventually, this may be an app that people can use with any smart device. Now, that's our goal, widespread use for people around the world. With that in mind, the first experiment, or one of the first he did, was measuring their electromagnetic fields. So when I say there, I'm talking about post-material persons. So as you know, Dr. Schwartz did experiments with mediums 20 years ago and found about 20 who are very highly evidential, 90% hit rates. Well, about 10 of those became colleagues and friends. And over time then, they started independently telling Gary bits of information. Albert Einstein keeps showing up. David Bohm, who's a contemporary of Einstein, they're telling us that you're supposed to build technology so we can have a voice, so we can help you heal your world. And they provided bits of information then. So it's not like you said, hey, mediums, find us some uh, far out intelligent deceased people to communicate with. It's more like those people, Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla and so on, were aware of your project and were aware that the mediums were collaborating with you and through the mediums communicated with you. They wanted you to know something or other or tell you something. And they, they saw the medium as a channel through which to do that. Correct sometimes three or four different ones coming up with the same message independently. They had to communicate with each other. Through different mediums, not through the same person. Correct. So that's partly how this information came in. So the first device, measuring their electromagnetic field, because you know how humans have electromagnetic field that emanates from the brain, but especially the heart, sometimes 20, 30 feet more, and it's measurable. And this is part of the research Dr. Schwartz did at Harvard in the past. So he's very aware of that. Well, there are electromagnetic field uh, radiation detectors, sensors that can pick that up. So the control in this case would be an empty room with a detector. And the computer measures and shows if any is detected. Well, with no one in the room, material or post-material, human or otherworldly, you see what you expect to see, baseline, just kind of hovering along the x-axis, like a flatline EEG or EKG. Then one of the humans would go in and the sensor would detect their big energy. Then one of the mediums would ask one of the post-material persons, one of the A-team members, please go in there and the EMR sensors would pick up their energy, not as high in amplitude as humans, but very statistically significant versus the control. However, there's no way these things are so sensitive, they can pick up other things besides persons. So there's no way uh, it was envisioned to commercialize. The second device of share would would be their motion. And this is one of the two experiments that shows they have physicality, or at least hand. This is called the dynamical interferometer, which is basically a airtight chamber with a very sensitive measuring device inside that measures micro air currents. So control is nobody's in the room, certainly nobody's inside the chamber. And again, 
pretty much flat lime. So is the then, box that we're looking at in this, in this slide, is that the chamber you're referring to? No. No. Then one of the mediums asked one of the A-team members to enter into or put their hand inside this airtight chamber. Immediately, the sensors show micro air movement current. And laws of physics show that for those air molecules to move, something had to displace them. Something had to enter that system. But again, no way to commercialize that for the masses. The one that you're referring to in slide 13 is called a uh, silicon photomolecular device. This is a $50,000 piece of equipment. It's basically a box within a box within a box pure blackness inside with only a shielded light sensor in a minus 35 degree sonograde sleeve that can measure a single photon of light. So control blackness. Nobody's in the room. Nobody's in the chamber. Then a medium will ask one of the 18 members, please enter the chamber or put your hand in the chamber. Right away, a beam of light appears. Please move from left to right. It does. Please move from right to left. It does. Please leave the chamber. Please go back in. It's like clockwork. This beautiful white light. However, again, you know, I don't think people want, this is the size of a thick suitcase, $50,000. I don't think people want to carry one of those around. <laughs> so, so far, this shows they have electromagnetic field. They have some physicality and density and they have, or at least reflect, can emanate light. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's heard ghost stories, so to speak, of things getting knocked off the wall or feeling something brush past you or seeing some diaphanous apparition or something like that. So that kind of refers to all the things you just, you just mentioned, really. Some ability to interact with physical reality and to be seen to some extent, uh, to emanate some sort of light. And this is I just want to say that anybody who finds this conversation far-fetched, that's understandable. I mean, this is pretty far-out stuff. But take a scientific attitude toward it. Don't just say, oh, that's BS, or stifle any doubts you may have. Try to formulate them into a question. And if you're watching the live version of this, send in your question, and Mark will answer it. And if you're watching it later on, there's a discussion group that I'll link to from Mark's page on BatGap where people might want to hash this stuff out a little bit. If you could go back 100 years, if one of us could hop in a time machine, go back 100 years and tell the people who lived then all the things we're going to have today, they'd all think you're crazy. They'd probably lock you up unless you happen to run into H.G. Wells or something. Who knows what it might be like 100 years from now? What if, what if we are seeing in what Mark's describing the precursors of very advanced technologies, which would actually allow the kind of communication he's talking about? So I'm open to the possibility, and I can't say for certain that it'll pan out, but it's interesting to consider. Yeah, and as you say, people have had these experiences, and that's one of the field. There's three categories of evidence for afterlife. Scientific, which there is very little, but I'm sharing some with you today. Clinical, near-death experiences, for example, and then evidential or experiential. People have these firsthand experiences. The trouble with the latter is they're subjective. There's no way to objectively measure those, whereas in this case, everything I'm describing is occurring in a university-based laboratory with controls, everything else that I described in the beginning. 
The fourth way, Rick, that we measured their presence and signal was by seeing an image. And this is a precursor to the fourth device, Soul Video, which is like we're doing now, Skype, FaceTime, Zoom. Here's what happened. A couple of the mediums shared from David Bohm, again, Princeton mathematician and physicist, close friend with Krishnamurti. And so he was blending Hinduism wisdom with quantum physics. As many oh of God, the early physicists I... did. They were quoting David. the Vedas and so on. Yeah, yeah. David Bohm, B-O-H-M. He passed on to Gary. He said, we, that is, we post-material persons, are visible to the human eye. However, the brain, limited as it is and designed as it is to function in this physical world, can only detect one or two frames out of a thousand. So Gary took that information and bought a very expensive camera that takes 60,000 frames per minute. He reasoned that that ought to capture some of those frames. So the control was the camera's point against a solid black background, and the outcome is what you expect, black. Then he had a software programmer create proprietary software that detects anomalous frames, frames that are different. So again, most all the frames are pure black, but this software detected ones that were blurry, white, shadows, movement. And then the medium involved with the experiment asked an A-team member one at a time to stand in front of the camera and move because that motion is detected. And sure enough, there were a number of those anomalous frames, which when you pair them together is like an early video. You're probably old enough to remember the big excitement we had when our kids was like a deck of cards and you flip it slowly and it looked like a, a video motion picture. Yeah, boy, the things we were excited about back then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it was very similar to this. So that's the precursor for Soul Video. However, the funds were not available to pursue that. But Dr. Schwartz actually thinks that creating the video might be easier than we think. It could fall right in place, especially once we have the keyboard and are getting increased quality and quantity of information from them. Do you get the sense that they're trying to feed you information as best they can? These guys you mentioned are geniuses, and you know, people like Tesla invented all kinds of incredible things. was way ahead of his time. Do you have a feeling like they actually have an understanding of how to make these things that you're trying to make, and they would like to convey that to you somehow? I like the way your mind works, Rick. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dr. Schwartz really specialized in the field of systems theory. He wrote about in his book, The Living Energy Universe. He says that systems theory and quantum physics requires that anything we create on Earth is stored in the zero-point field or the quantum field. You know, Rishi's called it the Akashic record, Akashic field. And so if we come up with a cell phone or a computer or whatever, that should be very elementary to those living in an unobstructed part of the universe. So certainly they should be able to replicate that. And then what we need is an interface so we can communicate. So that would be another way versus them using our technology here on Earth. The last one uh, was measuring their parents, their ability to be photographed. Uh, which is big. 
The next one was their ability to speak, to create sound. And this is one that actually got me involved with Dr. Schwartz. We were both involved with Eternia, which is a group started by John Audet and Evan Alexander. Gary was a chairperson. I was a vice president. So Eternia.org designed to merge science and spirituality. Well, it was evident that we were kindred spirits and sometimes we used very similar language. Well, he would send to the, the core group his latest experiments. And this is one I read. You know, I got goosebumps, cold chills, hair stand up my arms, and I knew I needed to contact and see how can I help. The experiment was this. They had an audiologist booth, you know, a soundproof booth, and had a vibration-dampening floor in it. It was wrapped with copper foil, so it was effectively a Faraday cage to minimize electromagnetic field fluctuations. It was in a room with no heating or cooling ducts, so there weren't temperature fluctuations, controlling as many variables as possible. The control for this, there was a, a large microphone with a, like a three-foot plexiglass shield, a, a sound collector inside the booth. And control was nobody's in the booth, nobody's in the room, silence, showing on an oscilloscope. Then a human would go in and whisper nine words that were pre-designed at a cadence, one word every second. And whispering those words showed high amplitude peaks on the oscilloscope. Then one of the 18 members was asked to go into the booth and yell those same nine words because, hello, they're coming from another dimension. And indeed, for each of those words, there was a blip on the oscilloscope, not as large as humans again, but very highly statistically higher than the control. And those nine words, speaking for those in the next part of life who were geniuses while on earth, very caring, loving, productive people and want to help us, were, we are here to help you heal your world. And you know how in, in life you'll encounter something. Well, like I said, the, the picture of Maharaji, just like, okay, I'm supposed to do that. When I read this, like, okay, I'm supposed to help. And I called him. We were going to be in uh, Arizona in a few weeks, never thinking he'd have time to meet. He made time, and that's when he asked me to be the spokesperson. And we've achieved a lot in the last four years together. Cool. One thing I just want to throw in here is – I often try to put myself in the audience's shoes, and I, I have conversations with people who are spiritual people, but they have a hard time accepting even something like reincarnation or that anything survives bodily death. I'll meditate all my life, and it's great, and I have nice experiences, but come on, don't tell me that I'm going to live when the body dies. One way I would answer that objection, think in terms of gross and subtle, not only large and small, but gross and subtle, and also like you said in the beginning, we only perceive a tiny fraction of all the things that are actually going on around us that if we had different sensory apparatus, we might perceive. It's said that birds can actually see magnetic fields and navigate thereby. And obviously dogs and bats and dolphins and all kinds of creatures can, can hear and smell, especially here in terms of the species I just mentioned, things that humans can't perceive. So there are all kinds of things that are outside the realm of our ordinary perception. 
one way of thinking of this in, in a way that science doesn't really consider. I mean, scientists understand the frequencies that bats and dogs can hear, but another, there's another dimension to it, which is that there are gross and subtle levels of creation. And the subtler realms traditionally have been called astral or celestial or, or like you said, akashic, words like that. They're just as real as the concrete gross stuff that we experience, but just outside the the spectrum of the band on the spectrum of potential perception that we occupy. But there are people who have broader bandwidth. They do perceive angels or or, you know, celestial beings or, you know, devas or elementals. I've, I've interviewed some of those people, and they seem very credible to me. I've even had a few glimpses myself, but just glimpses. And I think when you consider all the accounts in the world's spiritual traditions of these types of entities, angels and, and whatnot, there's around the world, everything from the South American indigenous tribes to Native Americans to the Indians, the the Judeo-Christian tradition, they all have accounts of this stuff, and it's in the artwork, it's in the literature. So something's been going on for the last couple thousand years, and it's presumptuous of us to just dismiss it because it doesn't make sense to us or it doesn't make sense to our modern scientific understanding. And if you just kind of think that way, it helps you accept the kind of stuff that Mark is saying here. Anyway, that's a bit of a rant. Give people a leg up if they're having a hard time with this. It's a very good rap. Here's uh, one metaphor for it, and this comes from Lynn McTaggart's book, The Field, where she interviewed some of the top quantum physicists in the world. They say that of all the light and energy that exists in our world, and you understand that's fundamentally really what we are, beings of that manifesting in different ways. We're not really solid or, or separate. So if all the light and energy that exists in our world were the size of Mount Everest, the portion the average human can perceive would be the size of a golf ball. Yeah, yeah. And that's why Dr. Schwartz and I called our book Greater Reality Living, greater reality being our preferred term for the totality of life, all that exists, reality. And Here, here's another metaphor for you. If you took the electromagnetic field, which gives us our visual perception, which also gives us radio waves and X-rays and cell phone signals and everything else, if you made that the electromagnetic spectrum the length of the Mississippi River, human visual perception would be like a few centimeters somewhere south of Hannibal, Missouri. I know. Uh, so that I think that helps people realize we're going around looking through a tiny pinhole, and that's one of the reasons for centering practices to expand that even a little bit can make a big difference. And we understand more the mind of God. We understand that life is fair and just and magnificent when we can see more of that. One other practical point, because there's a good chance a lot of your viewers are sensitives, uh, which is a term for people who can perceive more than that golf ball size compared to Mount Everest. And it's tough for people on our planet who are sensitive. Now, some are also empathic, which means they can feel the emotions of others. But people are sensitive who can feel, hear, see, smell more than the average person. Not so long ago, were burned at the stake. Yeah. And, you know, they're considered kooks. And people keep this inside and don't share it. But now we realize how common it is. And that's from the reason we start these greater reality living groups so people can share their personal experiences 
have a tribe, have a group of kindred spirits where they're not judged or criticized. And it's great that it's happening in academia because even now, you know, if some graduate student wants to do his PhD thesis in extrasensory perception or some such thing, his faculty advisors say, what are you trying to ruin your career? I mean, you, you won't get funding. You'll be ostracized. You know, you'll be siphoned off into some little side channel of, of you know, the academic world. Just do something practical. There's a strong bias against this kind of thing by those who are clinging to the materialist paradigm. Yeah, you're right. People can lose funding, they can lose their job, their reputation. Dr. Schwartz has, as you can imagine, many colleagues from over the years, some of whom were his students when he was a professor at Harvard and Yale. They love him, they respect him, they know the quality of his work. But when they see these experiments, they say, Gary, I don't see any flaws in your methodology. There's only one problem. I don't believe there's an afterlife. So your results can't be right. And it's frustrating for Dr. Schwartz because he said, what happened to the the credo of follow the data? Put aside your pre-existing beliefs and see where the data lead. That's why the Galileo Project over in the UK was so named, because church authorities refused to look through Galileo's telescope because what he was telling them couldn't be true. So why even bother to look? Yeah. So would you like to pick back up on, we have a couple more experiments. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, give me slide numbers if there's a slide, and I will just go to that one. Yeah, we're to number 15. Okay. And this is measuring the uh, attenuation of a photon or laser beam. All right, so the experiment is you have an eight-foot wide or long table, and you have a beam emitter, again, either photons or laser. And we know how long it gets takes to go from point A to point B. Now, that's the control. That's the constant. Then a plexiglass hand will be passed through the beam, and the beam will slow down some, slow down its, its speed. Then, one of the post-material persons will put their hands through, and it slows down the beam, not as much as a plexiglass hand, but very highly statistically significant versus the control. This and the air movement one are what convinced us that post-material persons do have physicality or can. And let's talk about that for a moment. Before you go to that, let me ask you a question about this. Light goes 186,000 miles a second in a vacuum. So are you saying that this equipment that we just saw is actually, even though it fits on an eight-foot table, is able to measure slight fluctuations in the speed of light? Is that what you're saying? Yes, but not just light, but the laser beam as well. Now, these are... Well, the laser beam is light. These are small attenuation effects, but measurable and discernible, yes. Things like glass and water can slow down light. And you notice in the photo that there are lots of mirrors there. And this is partly to amplify the signal. And it's also partly to show that diminishing speed passing through all that glass. That was set up by an optical physicist, which is amazing. So uh, talking about their density, Albert Einstein described through some of the mediums, he said, we are historical energy systems who can manifest in various ways depending upon our intent and with whom we're interacting. That's not an exact quote, but that's paraphrasing. 
historical energy systems is the key word there. So the analogy I use for people who maybe their minds are starting to blow from this is consider you have an electrical supply coming in your house or condo. That electricity then manifests in different ways, operates different devices, your TV, your, you know, your stereo, your lights. Well, similarly, the energy that is us can manifest in different ways. Native Americans recognized this in their art millennia ago. Uh, we were talking about Michael Newton earlier. Based on his work, 35,000 different cases from people around the world and deep, deep hypnosis, four-hour sessions, he was able to gain a sense of how much of their energy it took to visit Earth. Yeah, let me just clarify. Michael Newton, what he did was he hypnotically regressed people back to the period between lives. And he did so many thousands of them, as you just said. And there was such an agreement among the accounts that, that so many of them gave him that he was able to map out in quite some detail what people generally experience in the period between lives. And his books are, are very interesting. Uh, so on average, 25% of a called a soul's or entity's energy, is required to have this earthly experience. The rest could be experiencing other times and places, other parts of the field of all possibilities, as a a plant, a human, formed or formless, animal, and part never leaves home. Okay, so you and I, we're sitting here, and we may be only using 25% of the energy that comprises our soul in its entirety, and the other 75% might be doing other things. And actually, that pertains to this A-team, because who's to say that Tesla and Einstein and all these people haven't reincarnated, but even if they have, 75% or whatever of their energy could still be on the other side interacting with you. Yeah, a couple things about that. Dr. Weiss uh, said that on average, a person will wait 100 or 200 Earth years before coming back. So rapid reincarnations are not unheard of, but not common. Secondly, the word through the mediums are that none of these people we've worked with, and we've named some of them, Tesla, Sagan, Einstein, Edison, and others, none of them have reincarnated. However, what we are just describing dovetails beautifully with the concept of multilocation. Some people hear about bilocation, the ability to be in more two places at the same time. Well, two and a half years ago, I was gifted with the opportunity to work with Dr. Schwartz, have a meeting with him and one of the top evidential mediums, and ask questions of the A-team. Up until then, no one had done that because we wanted to honor at the time the focus was always on the technology. So imagine that, being able to ask people like that questions. Well, one was, gosh, we want to be so respectful of your time. You know, We hope we're not taking you away from doing your next goals and work. And I said, so can you multilocate? And they said, oh, yeah. And I said, can you be in five different places at the same time? And she reported they were chuckling and said, oh, you might say that. And I said, well, how about 10, 20, 30? I felt like an auctioneer at some point. They finally maxed out 50 to 100, depending on the person, different places, different actions and interactions. Uh, So that's also another way to look at this. Only part of our soul's energy is here. 
Yeah, you think about these people who say that they have seen Jesus or they're praying to Jesus. Uh, I'm just using him as a case in point, but we could see others. And um, you might ask, well, Jesus must be a real busy guy, kind of like like Santa Claus racing around dealing with all these different people. A being of that stature could probably multitask to a very great extent without breaking a sweat. Yep, exactly. So that's how they can have physicality. You know, one of the first ways I came across this was near-death experiences. It's a common question for people to ask, well, when I pass on, how will I recognize my grandma who died 50 years ago? Surely she doesn't still look like grandma these years, frozen in time. I said, no, but she'll probably appear that way to you so that you'll be comforted. You'll be able to identify her. And then later, once you've loosened your attachment to we are just our bodies, then she can appear as how she is now or, or just light and energy. Yeah. The last device then, and this leads to the present time, is slide number 16, and that is the electronic soul switch. Most people remember in grade school, and they probably did a simple experiment where they had a battery, two wires coming off the poles of the battery, and then a light bulb. And you had to touch the bare wires, both wires, to the light bulb for it to light up. That's called closing the circuit. Well, likewise, we used an experiment where we had an open circuit. And in the photo, you see in the upper left what's called a pico amp meter. This measures one millionth of one volt. <laughs> Such sensitive equipment. So with this open circuit, one of the 18 members can close the circuit, put their hand on the device to effectively close the circuit and then register the energy. And there's different ways that, and it's patentable, so I can't give it away. But this is the most conceived, commercializable device to use. The only trouble was it was so sensitive. It was picking up 110 outlet voltage, fluorescent lights, cars going a block away. So sensitive to pick up the signal of spirit that it was picking up all sorts of other things. Anyway, it's kind of a long story, but we have made a number of modifications to that. And right now the research is on the electronic soul switch, which should be 99% accurate, should be instantaneous, very reliable, allowing these yes and no answers. And then that's what then will be created in series for the soul keyboard. Good. Mark Gober, whose book I held up earlier, sent in a few questions. Would this be a good time to ask them, or do you want to continue on? Okay, so here's a few questions from Mark. Is the soul phone capable of discernment? Even if accurate information is obtained, how can we be sure that the being is not an imposter? Yeah, it's the number one question we receive, and that is we have a series of tests One is called the personal identification test. That was really the most recent experiment. And by the way, I haven't mentioned yet, because this is very important, we are preparing to embark on a series of multicenter studies at other universities, laboratories, and institutes. So multicenter studies are the gold standard for scientific evidence or proof, close as you can. So in other words, other people will try to replicate your findings. Right. Yeah, first of all, the personal identification test. We were using four 18 members then. 
Nikola Tesla was one. I'll use him as an example. So there are 12 different questions. And for one of the four, the answer would be yes. For the others, the answer would be no. So we're using a plasma globe, a Tesla coil at the time to measure their yes and no answers. So the system was, if the answer to the question shown on the computer is yes, put your hands on top of the the globe, actually inside it. If the answer is no, keep your hands in your lap. Questions like, were you born in this country? Was this your mother's name? Was this your father's name? Was this your birthday? Was this your death date? Did you write a book by this name and so on? And when you see them answer correctly, questions whether the answer should be yes or no 100% across the time, then you have more assurance that they are who the mediums say they are. In addition, we have what's called the expert knowledge test where a very arcane piece of information will be shown on the screen. For example, a section of Einstein's theory of relativity. And the question would be, was this, okay, Dr. Einstein, was this part of your theory? Yes. However, if it was somebody else's theory, the answer should be no for that. Again, this would be information that almost nobody knows. We will have to go research and find If the person was a musician, lyrics to a a little-known song. Are these lyrics to a song you wrote? So this is another way that we can be sure that who the person is uh, purportedly, they really are. And so it's a topic we're very much aware of, and we have to be concerned for that for safety and integrity. Aside from the 18 members in the slide that I've been showing, I've I've heard you in the recordings I've listened to mention Harry Houdini and a musician named Peter. I was wondering if that was Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky by any chance. And then you've also mentioned Michael Jackson. How big is the A-team aside from the five or so people that you have in that slide? 30 core people because our mediums can only deal with so many people. You you can imagine working with a team and if you've got hundreds, it's the communication be difficult. So there are about 30, but they say for each one of them, there are hundreds more working behind the scenes and waiting in the wings to get a voice for our communication technology to be able to. Uh, so, for example, I think it was two years ago. Well, it wasn't long after Steve Jobs passed. And a couple of the mediums said, Steve Jobs is coming through. He would like to help you guys. And the answer was, sorry, Steve, we can't use you right now. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is Steve Jobs. Who what said are you that? Saying? Who's, whose answer was that? Well, from the team, because we just couldn't use them at the time. We had too many voices involved, and we weren't at the point of technology where we could use his input. Would you want to hear what he had to say first before Man. telling him to, to get lost? This is a small research team, and we are deluged with projects and information so okay yeah we would like to hear all kinds of things but i can, can understand we? deluge we're, we're that yeah. way with interview requests so that's how many of the 18 members there are we've actually quit talking about them too much because that sets off the bullshit meter for some people like okay this is too weird and we realize that we respect that and so we've decided to not talk too much about the 18 members and wait until they can speak for themselves. I mentioned this 
session with one of the mediums where I could ask some questions. And one was, when the technology is able to provide a webinar, even if it's texting and typing, but certainly once there's voice and seeing, would you all be willing and able to teach us on different topics, you know, global sustainability, healthcare, feeding the poor, world peace, I mean, free energy. There's so many topics. Would you be willing and able to do that? And the medium started laughing. She said, they're pushing each other out of the way to get first in line. So they very much want to share that with us. So hope is coming. So you were implying that those on the other side, if, if, if other side is an okay term with you, are privy to all this knowledge that would solve many of the problems here on Earth. And uh, presumably we were privy to it before we incarnated here. But somehow we lose that knowledge when we come here, just as we lose a lot of stuff, a lot of knowledge when we come here, knowledge of our you know, higher nature. So it's a matter of facilitating the communication between here and the other side so that there can be a more of a free flow of knowledge and information. Yeah, and I don't know if I'd agree with they're all privy to, but I would say that if we on Earth are looking through a pinhole, they're maybe looking through a silver dollar size. So they're understanding more about the greater reality. Especially the Einsteins and the Teslas and the the Jobs and people like that. They were geniuses while on Earth. They continued working. So, yeah, they certainly have something to share. A Tesla said, by the way, if you think I invented some amazing things while I was on Earth, wait till you see what I've been working on here. <laughs> and immediately the word free energy just kind of yeah. came into my intuition. And presumably when you say that Tesla said that, you're not saying he communicated that knowledge through your soul switch or anything. He got that through a medium who, Suzanne Geisman or somebody. Yeah, so I should say purportedly said. Purportedly, sure. But yeah, we trust our mediums. I mean, yeah, I mean, you and I both have a scientific attitude and you're not presenting this as the gospel truth. And I'm not listening to it as the gospel truth, but I'm just listening. I mean, my attitude is that Everything is a hypothesis. Angels, do they exist? Uh, Aliens from other planets, do they exist? It's a hypothesis. You don't have to disbelieve it. You don't have to believe it. But be open-minded to whatever evidence presents itself. Some hypotheses are much more credible than others because they have accumulated a lot more evidence. There are people who believe we haven't put men on the moon, and there's so much evidence that we have. So um, you just have to sort of um, be open to what we do know and strive to know more. I agree. That's the process of science, scientific inquiry. So here's another question from Mark Gober. Is the soul phone limited or restricted in terms of the types of beings it can access? Because there are all kinds of beings, not just uh, humans who have crossed over. Yeah. Our initial research is as I mentioned, on post-material persons, that is, those who are humans on Earth. The next stage of research, as soon as we're able, will be for higher energy beings, angels, guides, whatever terms are used. However, the equipment involved will be much different. With humans, the trick has been to dampen the background noise and amplify their signal because it's so relatively tiny. For angels and higher energy beings, the assumption is, and we haven't had a chance to test this yet, 
that they would blow up our current technology. And so we will need technology that can handle large currents. You know, it's very much like what I was describing my ohm experiment. And that was one of the takeaways from that is that my nervous system, even though I was chiropractic and optimal nervous system and uh, meditation, yoga, etc., my nervous system wasn't able to handle that much current at the time. There were probably masters who could have just kept going on for hours like that or in a similar way. The technology we need to communicate with whether it's humans or angels or hopefully eventually source energy itself will differ widely. Yeah, there's a term spiritual emergency. Stanislav Grof, I think, popularized the term, but there are so many cases of people who just get too much voltage going through their system, a bit more awakening than they're prepared to handle. Sometimes it's catapulted upon them through drugs or something, psychedelics, and other times even through meditation or even sometimes nothing. Some people just have this radical sudden awakening and and a lot of integration and stabilization has to take place. And that's why spiritual traditions, most of them have all sorts of methodologies for purification and and, uh, integration that, you know, you would want to uh, engage in before any kind of major awakening. Otherwise, you won't be able to handle it. I agree. And Dr. Grouth is a genius, uh, was one of the guests on my show. I learned a lot from his holotropic breathing. And uh, yeah, what a giant in the field of consciousness. Yeah, he's been on that gap too. Final question from Mark. Has there been any collaboration with the Windbridge Research Center? If so, are there aspects of their methodologies that can be applied to cell phone research? Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Baishel, Julie Baishel, were colleagues years ago. I think she got her PhD under him at the University of Arizona. They are focusing primarily, as we understand, on credentialing mediums now and focusing on that mediumship field, whereas Dr. Schwartz has largely moved away from that, except for the ability of evidential mediums to pass through bits of information from these luminaries. She and the Institute are excellent. Yeah, I think she's on our short list of people to interview. So where do you want to go next? Well, you're the host, Rick. <laughs> and <laughs> you're the crazy guy that's listening to all my... So I'd like to... Uh, yeah, I get the T-shirt for that. Can, You'll be sending me the, the T-shirt, right? You get to be the conductor here. But also, I'd feel free to interrupt me if there's something that comes to mind that you want to talk about that I haven't thought to ask you. One article was entitled The Good Death, and I know you've worked, you've witnessed at least 100 people die in your work in the medical field, and um, I'm sure you've seen the whole gamut in terms of people who are terrified of dying, people who have no problem with it and feel like it's just going to be like changing clothes or like, you know, getting off one airplane and getting onto another. So what do you mean by a good death? It's one of the projects uh, Dr. Schwartz and I want to work on in the future. He's actually written a paper and worked with a team of medical doctors and psychologists and others because it's a big problem, as you may be aware of. Deciding when is enough. You know, medical doctors are taught you never give up and you keep trying. Well, when I worked in hospitals, for example, true story, I swear to God, Middle of the night, code four, we go up there and 
the patient is 93 years old. He had two limbs amputated because of severe diabetes. He had chronic liver, kidney failure. He had had several heart attacks. This poor guy is trying to die, but they went through the whole thing, shocking him and tubes and port and so on. And I said to the chief resident, what are we doing? My God. And he said, teaching hospitals are a rough place to die. Basically, they were practicing on him. And after a few hours of being poked and shocked and inhumane things, he finally died. I'll just share a few glimpses of this, or a few snippets of it. I wrote that about two years ago now, one of our cats uh, was dying. She's very old and failing. It was clearly time to move on. Just before the veterinarian gave her the relaxing shot, he said, I just hope I can pass on this peacefully when it's my time. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Who made this one up? Cats and dogs can pass in a timely way with dignity, but humans have to suffer and, you know, sometimes curl up in a coma and contractures and 80 pounds. And unfortunately, part of it is about money. Part of it is about fear. I talked with a physician friend about this recently. He said, hey, sometimes we try to get through to the family that they should let them go. But the family's so afraid. No, do whatever you can to save them. And I think seeing a loved one pass makes them afraid and reminds them that one day they're going to be in that same situation. So there are a few angles to it, but certainly as we know without a doubt that life continues on, people should have a choice to end their life when they're ready in a timely way. That's the term good death, which is what euthanasia means. Yeah. A couple of funny things come to mind. One was Woody Allen. He said, uh, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And uh, another was kind of a joke. uh, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather did, not screaming in terror like the passengers in his car. (laughs) Oh, oh. Oh, that's a little irreverent, but I love it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, if you look at the percentages of the healthcare expenditure that this nation inflicts upon itself, a very disproportionate amount of it is in, you know, keeping people alive in the very last years of life where there isn't much quality of life. Yeah, I worked with a patient for weeks, again, probably upper 80s. Uh, This person was in a coma. They were trying to die from pneumonia, but we wouldn't let them. So we kept giving them breathing treatments and suctioning their lungs. I was with this person numerous times and never saw any visitors, never saw any cards or flowers. And I was reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at the time. This is in the mid-70s and aware that hearing is often the last to go, even a person's comatose. So I just spoke into their ear quietly and said, hey, if you want to keep living, we'll keep doing everything we can. But if you're ready to move on, you realize you have control over that. Look around. You likely will see the light, aware of near-death experiences at the time. You likely will see visitors, loved ones, perhaps pets, who are there just waiting for you. 
And I said, if you want to do that, follow the light, reach out, take God's hand or their hand. And I did that with two people, and both of them passed on within 24 hours. This is a time when there was a nurse in Cincinnati. Which uh, is I remember part. that. Yeah. So she, she was killing was like, people, right? I probably should quit this. Yeah, I might get arrested <laughs> or something. But it showed to me that perhaps part of why people will linger on a vegetative state because they're afraid. They're not educated. So shame on us. We need to do a better job. Yeah. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita which goes, certain indeed is death for the born and certain is birth for the dead. Therefore, over the inevitable, you should not grieve. Well, well I'll tell you, I'm glad I'm not still driving the car that I was driving in 1965. If I were trying to, I'd be putting a lot of money into repairs. It's, it's nice to be having a, driving a newer one. Sure. People get the and, metaphor. Yes, it's a very good metaphor. So let me, you know, you said what else would I like to share, and that yeah. is to kind of bring this together and help people realize how it helps their here and now. When was Father's Day? A week ago, Sunday, or last Sunday. God, what a week it's been. I received an email the day before from a woman. She said, I just bought the book, Greater Reality Living, for my husband. She said, our son passed two years ago, and I figured this is the best gift I could give him, and that's slide 24. This is the best gift I could give him to give him some comfort. And she said, we've been following news about the soul phone for some time, and frankly, it's the only thing keeping us going that we know that we may be able to communicate with our son someday. And I thought, my God, first of all, I'm, I'm glad it gives them hope. But secondly, how sad fathers, they want to be with their kids or at least a good conversation. And here's this poor dad reading a book about afterlife and the possibility of communication someday. That's the best he has. and. It's so sad. It's so painful. And lots of people. I mean, I get numerous emails from people around the world every day. My wife passed. My husband passed. Our child passed. I was on the board of HelpingParentsHeal.org for five years. I've worked with thousands and thousands of bereaved parents. It's just one of my callings. Also, people who are suicidal and people whose loved ones have passed by suicide. That's the toughest of the tough. So there's an example of how learning this information can give relief, can give comfort. Another true life example for younger kids, we get also on slide 24, the book that Dr. Schwartz and I just wrote with a woman named Kata Mapes. She has a dual master's in childhood education and counseling, and it's called The Big Picture of Life. It's basically greater rowdy living, but written for kids about 9 to 16. Although it turns out some adults say they understand it better than greater rowdy living. A couple of weeks ago, two of my grandkids were over, a uh, seven and nine year old, and the nine year old, Stella, was reading the book to us. So we read a chapter about a grandmother's dying and the family's there at her bedside, and then finally she passes. And then our illustrator created a picture of now grandma's bodies, you know, laying in bed, supposedly dead. But then here's her essence, her 99.9%. 
hovering in the air, reaching out to the family, trying to let them know, hey, I'm here, I'm okay, I'm alive, we'll see each other again. All this great news. And after we talked about that, I said, so you guys, one of these days I'm going to die. You know, I mean, I'm 60 years older than you, and quite probably I'm going to pass on first. I hope this helps you remember this talk when I do pass and know we'll see each other again. I'm not really dead. We can communicate in different ways and still have this happy, loving relationship. Well, little Johnny said, um, I know, but I don't want you to die, Grandpa. And I said, well, I know it's kind of sad, but hopefully it helps what we've been talking about. And Stella said, I'm still going to be sad, but just not as much as before. And I thought, that's it. That's right there. You know, being on earth is tough and we're still going to suffer somewhat. But if we can lighten and abbreviate that suffering, what's that worth? Yeah. You know, one thought that comes to mind is that you guys are trying to develop these contraptions. It'll be really cool if you do and, you know, commercialize them, make them accessible to lots of people. But we have a pretty cool contraption right here in terms of our mind-body system, our nervous system. And these evidential mediums you've been working with have unfolded certain capabilities of that contraption that make them different than most people. They, they actually can communicate in a way which you might hope your soul phone would enable more people to do. But we might actually be heading into a time where the kinds of abilities that these evidential mediums have become much more commonplace. I could envision a society in which um, it was kind of the norm for people to be able to communicate, even see and hear people who had passed over, because obviously human beings do have that capability, and and I, I think that if anyone has any capability, everyone has it. It's just that most people haven't tapped into it and unfolded it. Love it, and that's why you've done 500 shows, Rick. Splendid job. Yeah, the, the 100th Monkey by Ken Keyes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. He talks about the, the true observation by animal uh, zoologists who are observing that monkeys would peel fruit, but then it would fall into the sand and they couldn't eat it. But then one monkey washed it off and learned how to do that. And these animal behaviors noticed that on other continents, almost immediately, animals started washing their fruit and never having been observed doing that before. So that is one of our hopes that as people learn this evidence, scientific evidence, and as more people develop their sense of abilities, as you say, that becomes more normative for people, opens up that control gate more, more people awaken to who they are, why they're here. Yeah. How wonderful life is. There's also Rupert Sheldrake's work with morphic fields or morphogenetic fields. And the whole notion that, um, well, this relates to the 100th monkey thing, but for instance, running the four-minute mile. It was such a big deal to run the four-minute mile. And I think it was Roger Bannister, who uh, was the guy's name, who finally broke that limit and ran a four-minute mile. And no one thought it could be done, and he finally did it. But after he did it, it started to become more and more common. 
I think that's true of all kinds of things, athletic abilities and various types of knowledge and other kinds of human capabilities, that once somebody breaks the boundary, then the field becomes more porous in terms of that um, particular thing, and it's easier to penetrate by other people who might not have quite the capability of um, the person who first penetrates it. Some people even say that about enlightenment, like it took a kind of a Superman like the Buddha to get enlightened in his day and age. But now so many people have crossed that barrier that the barrier is quite diaphanous, quite porous. So awakenings are kind of multiplying in a popcorn fashion. Yeah, Wayne Dyer um, had a book, such a great teacher, you know, the, the saying, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, he switches said, I'll see it when I believe it. And that's just what we're discussing here. Yeah. Yeah. When people know it more, it's, it's all around us. It's you know, right in front of us. And that's part of, I created a uh, technique called the facilitated after-death communication technique. So after-death communications, as you know, meaningful perception of a, quote, departed loved one while awake or asleep but usually those are spontaneous and they're so treasured. Well, after training with Raymond Moody for a week, doing the mirror gazing psychomanium technique, I reasoned that if indeed the goal is to turn down the brain's analysis and see more of what's really there, we could do that through deep hypnosis. I've been using clinical hypnosis for 40 years. So I created these techniques and it's described under article number nine, at soulproof.com, different practical ways a person can facilitate or enhance the ability to perceive their loved ones, like set an appointment, hold an object of theirs, and so on. But with this technique, then many people, especially these bereaved parents, experience their child holding their hand, stroking their hair, hugging them, sitting on their lap, and so on. And afterwards, they're profoundly moved by it. And it provides a lasting benefit that stays with them. So that's what this group is all about. Going from a bereaved parent, lower energy, emotions, sadness, anger, guilt, blame, etc., to shining light parents who realize, oh, my God, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a child who graduated from her school early. I'm going to find the silver linings to this. I'm going to create more meaning And these people are some of the most enlightened people, happy, serving others. I know it's just an incredible process of of alchemy to watch. You know, earlier I was mentioning how angels and things like that have been mentioned in all the various religious scriptures of the world. But they also mention the dark stuff, hell and evil spirits and devils and, you know, that kind of thing. And there have been many movies that are kind of scary depicting ghosts and you know like the movie ghost for instance so the screenwriter was um, a guest on my show kind of depicted some dark entities that were giving people trouble and what's your take on all that you're spending so much time and effort to contact the other side what if you contact something that you don't you would rather you hadn't yeah it's a big question thank you for asking it decades ago i studied um the Aramaic language through a couple authors, Rocco Erico, George Lamsa, and Neil Douglas Klotz. And it's amazing because, as you know, Aramaic was the seminal language in the place that birthed Islam, 
Judaism and Christianity. Yeah, that's what Jesus well, it spoke. Out, it turns out that the words for heaven and hell, for example, Hebrew, mawet, meant a passageway that you go through after the body dies where there's a sorting out process and you sort through your life. Okay, so this is a couple thousand years ago language. Now let's fast forward to when there's so many near-death experiences because of our current resuscitative capabilities. So we have very well mapped out and documented life reviews and people describe having a life review in which they not only see but feel everything they did or said to others. And if you were mostly good, then your life review is heavenly. And if it was mostly bad, it's hellish. But it was not punitive in nature, unlike what some religions teach. It was always about, it was instructional to help people grow. So to me, that's the purest way of understanding the nature of hell. When I was uh, about 10 years old, I was sitting in our church. Our minister was talking about fiery eternal hell. And a voice in my head, it's one of the first times I was aware of this, said, Mark, they have that one a little mixed up. God has no need for such a place in this plan of salvation for all. What was so clear and so obviously right I looked around to see the reaction of others, and they were all looking straight ahead, listening to the minister. And I realized I was the only one that heard it. So, you know, I played it straight. But I have shared that with so many people, and so many elders have shared with me that, yeah, they believed the same thing when they were kids. You know, like, here's a God of, of unfathomable love and caring. However, if you don't do certain things or believe a certain way, you'll fry forever. Yeah, that's schizophrenic. So this new model then of hell as, yes, we create, there's karma, we create, and you make your bed, you sleep in it. But it's not forever, and it is for a while. You know, we're asked about Hitler. Somebody like that may have to sleep for millennia before he can heal enough, build up enough energy to even begin his life review. And then that begins, oh, my God, you know, feeling and seeing all the pain. But eventually, even that, uh, that the consciousness can be uh, restored. Yeah, did you ever hear Danian Brinkley's story? He, yes. He was a sniper in Vietnam, and, and he had four near-death experiences. And, and in each one, he, he sort of had to experience not only the, what the people he had shot experienced, but also what their families experienced, having lost their loved one and the, the, their provider and so on and so forth. Then he's devoted his life to helping people in hospices and things like that. So he's definitely learned from those reviews. It wasn't just some punishment. Yes. And now that makes sense you know, to people. Okay, it's not God putting a, a hell on us or God deciding, oh, you made it to heaven forever. Not you, buddy. You're in hell forever. We created ourselves. And it's the same on earth, by the way. We create how heavenly or hellish our experience is. And by the way, let's double back to what we talked about before, that this earthly experience, real and solid as it seems, may actually be a, a virtual reality movie. We may be wearing goggles you know, on home base. It might be like reading a book or watching a movie, but with our limited uh, brain, it seems like this is the only thing that's happening. Yeah, the Hindus call it alila. It's God's play. And obviously, plays have tragedy and 
humor and all kinds of variety, which makes them interesting. <clears throat> now, you studied theology academically. I think I've heard you mention that, and many people know this, but the Bible is a hodgepodge of information. Much of it wasn't written down for a few hundred years after it happened, and then there was all kinds of editing and pruning and insertions, and just it's, it's definitely not some kind of set-in-stone infallible authority on anything, um, although some people cling to the notion that it is. It can help somebody who has a Christian background to actually study some Elaine Pagels or some other authorities on, on how all this information got cobbled together. I've heard you mention Jefferson. He created the Jefferson Bible in which he cut out everything except the stuff that Jesus had actually said. <laughs> <laughs> and even that hadn't been written down for a few hundred years. So, you, you know, you, you even have to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, what a mind, Thomas Jefferson. They said, as with any religious scripture, we need to separate diamonds from the dung heap. And he's right. So that's one of the reasons I went to theology school to find out for myself what are some of these teachings that never made sense. For example, the one, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. I said, wait a minute. I don't fear my parents. God is supposedly at least as loving as my earthly parents. And I found out that word fear could have just as easily been translated respect. So, all right, that makes sense. So after a year and a half of biblical history, the lead professor said, so as you now see, there is so little actual evidence for the stories reported in the Bible that it has to be taken upon faith. And I was like, what the hell? You know, why didn't you tell me that the first day <laughs> to save myself a lot of tuition? But it's true. As you say, there were councils that voted to delete or add different books. So political, just like today, you know, power mongers focusing on fame, fortune, control. So I tell people this, look for the golden threads that exist in the world's religions. Look for that that resonates within your heart. What would a loving God and teacher really say and do? And so it becomes pretty evident. I believe that reincarnation used to be in there, too. It was edited out at the Council of Nicaea by, uh, on the orders of some emperor or something. Yeah, it was a common tenet in the early Christian days. Interesting. Well, you know, the times are such, I think, where a lot of stuff is being reshuffled. As we speak, there's been the coronavirus and a whole lot of um, social upheaval. I don't know. I mean, in your um, experience with people on the other side and the evidential mediums and all, have you gotten any indications of what is happening to society right now, why there's so much, so much upheaval and um, where we might find ourselves when it all settles down? Yeah, we have no input. You know, keep in mind the team is so focused on the technology that I've not asked for any input from the, the mediums. And by the way, even the best of mediums have bad days. They can be tapping in the monkey mind. So that's why we need some reliable, very accurate technology. Nor have we sought input from the A-team. My sense is that we've fooled with Mother Nature so much we're experiencing the ramifications of it. I still practice part-time as a holistic physician, and I see it in so many people, including little children. You know, our food, air, water is so polluted. Our brains are being bombarded with heavy metals and chemicals, nutrient-deficient, quote, food. 
and the ramifications then are horrendous. Look at suicide, the number one cause of death in teenage girls. My God, what's going on? And so when is humanity going to wake up? Uh, I'll give you an example. The, uh, you know, I've got a white beard. I dyed it until a couple of years ago. And then I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm not fooling anybody. Number one. Number two, I'm putting this on my face, not so far from my brain. And I know there's chemicals and heavy metals in here. So when I was a kid, old people had white hair. Now you see so many, especially on TV, you know, solid black and you can tell it's fake. They're paying such a price for that. Look at all the Alzheimer centers now. I knew a lot of people when I was a kid, church, school, our neighborhood. There was one person that my mom said, oh, he doesn't think quite right sometimes. But now we have these huge centers in every city. So people need to wake up. And this is why I talk about my book, Radiant Wellness, how to fine-tune ourselves in body, mind, and spirit uh, so that we live a great life. We have the energy and vitality to handle life's demands and some left over to brighten the corner where we are. So this is actually part of the Soul Phone Project outreach to get some help from those looking at a different way, but also to gain a greater platform to share what we already know, try to wake people up. Yeah, I mean, the body is the temple of the soul, right? So it's the vehicle. I mean, if whatever we achieve, want to achieve in life, oh, spiritual or otherwise, if you want to be a great pianist and yet you never get any exercise and eat copious amounts of junk food all day, I bet you it's going to hamper your piano playing ability. So, And, you know, what to say of, of spiritual development, which requires a, a deep refinement of, of the nervous system, it's, it's important to take good care of the body. I agree. Yeah, and that's, that's a big part of it. And we talk about that in Greater Reality Living. It might be helpful for your listeners to, uh, to look at the lives formula. And that would be slide number 30. This is what we build the Greater Reality Living book around. So lives is an acronym, the L standing for learn the evidence, clinical, scientific, and experiential that clearly shows that death is not the end of life. That in itself is huge. The I in life stands for internalize this great news. In other words, we want to be more than just a dry, superficial, intellectual knowing, but a deep internalized knowing that stays with people. I've worked with numerous people who had a religious faith throughout their life, but when they were on in the uh, on-deck circle, they're like, whoa, are you sure these teachings are accurate? You know, this is getting pretty real for me. They were scared. And so it's important to have an internalized knowing that helps us get through life's toughest challenges. The V is for vitalize yourself holistically, just what we were talking about in body, mind, and spirit. The E for enjoy the many benefits. There are so many wonderful benefits that we can make strong, substantiated inferences about, for example, from near-death experiences. We each are one with the one and part of inner source energy right now. Secondly, we know that we can communicate with our, quote, departed loved ones, that we each have meaningful reasons for being here in this place and time, even when it doesn't seem like it. So E, enjoy the benefits. And then the S, serve others and yourself and make the world a better place. 
So we found that when people do this, then it transforms their life for the better in every aspect. They can enjoy the ride. They can do what they came here to do. Makes life make more sense. Yeah. Um, You mentioned suicide, you know, and uh, once in a while that topic comes up on this show. And I always think, well, you know, if we we could, thousands of people listen to this, if we were to say something that would prevent even one of them from committing suicide, it would be a great accomplishment. And um, there was one fellow I interviewed who actually committed suicide uh, himself because he had had some injury and he was in a lot of pain. And he had sort of this, to me, I thought it was a misinterpretation of the whole reincarnation notion. He thought, well, all right, this is, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm just going to off myself and I'll, I'll get a better body that doesn't have this pain. Personally, I think he should have hung in there. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not in his shoes, but maybe he could have been helped. Maybe he could have gotten over the pain and, and continued on. Before I ramble on any longer, I mean, what are your perspectives on that? Yeah, it's a big topic, as are most of your questions. And I've written articles, by the way, on almost all these topics at soulproof.com on the home page. There's one, when a loved one's body dies by suicide, and when you're considering suicide, by the way, I try to avoid the word commit. It's been pointed out to me that use commit murder or commit adultery. It's usually in a negative context. So try to avoid that with suicide because these people are suffering. Sure. They're in pain, whether it's mental and or physical. There's quite a few sides to it, but probably the number one thing I could share with people is this. It differs on the situation. For example, when I was 21 years old, my first love, we'd gone together four years, which is a long time when you're 21, broke up with me out of the blue. And I felt suicidal when I was driving home 60 miles an hour on the highway. And I thought, well, you know, I could just get away from this pain really quickly by driving my car into a tree and nobody know. They think I veered off the road or something. And me, I was like, no way, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to hurt my family. I'm not going to end my life abruptly like that. However, some people don't have the support system I had or the balance. They're in so much pain. There's no judgment. They act impulsively and do that. So big difference between an impulsive 21-year-old after the first heartbreak versus a 90-year-old that's lived a long, full life, but they're clearly losing their physical and mental capabilities don't want to go to an Alzheimer unit, don't want to be a burden to their family, drain the finances, et cetera, that the kids and grandkids could use. In the process of listening to a John Grisham audio book, and one of the characters in it talks about when he gets old and infirm, he said, when the diapers go on, the black pill goes down. (laughs) And I said, I get it. I will probably do the same because I don't do well. I wouldn't want to be an invalid and all that. So I can certainly understand that. Years ago, there was a, I think, Unitarian Universalist minister. It was in New York. He and his wife were in their late 80s. He was losing his mind. She was bedridden and really failing physically. I think they didn't have any children. They didn't want to burden anyone else. So they died by carbon monoxide poisoning. So some people say, oh, that's horrible. They killed themselves. God will send them to hell for that. And I say, 
good for them. They decided when and how they were going to pass death with dignity. But people shouldn't have to do it that way. They should be able to get a shot or a pill. And our system's getting it. There are some states and countries allowing that. However, there's one more thing I'd like to share about that, and that is that some of the information I get is that, and part of this from, from Michael Newton's work, some souls will get into the habit of bailing out too early, giving up. So I would say for a person, you know, hang in there, try as much as you can, try not to take the easy way out because it can be at times, but I don't have any judgment about it. There is also some evidence from mediums who will say they'll channel through the the person who passed by suicide or the person whose body's passed. Accurate language is important here. So the person didn't die, the body did. But the person will be apologizing to loved ones. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I put you through it. I wish I could do it over again. So it's a big, big question. And ultimately, who has to say about the person? But hopefully in counsel with his support team, both on earth and in heaven. Yeah. I would just say to people, don't let all this talk about assurance of life on the other side give you a cavalier attitude toward life on this side. I had a really good friend who I was quite close with, and he killed himself shortly after I started this show about 10 years ago. He was only about 25 years old, and there was nothing wrong with him. He just, I guess, went into a little period of depression. But he sort of philosophized so much about, you know, I could just check out any time and it won't matter, you know, because life goes on. And I don't think that we're supposed to do it that way, like you said, about checking out early or bailing because life isn't going quite the way we like. I'm sure that if he stuck around and sorted through whatever Mm -hmm. was troubling him, he would be an incredibly bright, productive person. He was really smart. And I, I miss him, you know, so I really hope that people take that to heart. Yeah, one of the number one statements in suicide notes is, I'm sorry, I just couldn't take it anymore. And those who are more evolved souls and sensitives and who spoke before, certainly empathics, it just becomes so difficult to stay here on earth. And that's why it's so important to gird our loins with this knowledge, have kindred spirits, have our tribe so that we can get through tough times. Yeah. I think that patience, I've often heard respected spiritual teachers say that patience is one of the most important qualities on the spiritual path. And there there are, again, great stories in various spiritual traditions about people who just hung in there through thick and thin. And in many cases, what they were going through turned out to be some kind of test. And because they hung in there, they passed the test. And then they attained some higher level of consciousness or some wonderful thing. So, like Nietzsche said, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I think that it's important for people to just try to go the distance if they can at all can. I agree. Without sounding too presumptuous, I mean, because you can't really put yourself in another person's shoes. And like you said, there could be instances where the situation is pretty hopeless and and it might be time to move on. Just don't make that decision hastily. Yeah, quality of life. A couple of years ago, a movie came out on Netflix. I can't recall the name of it, but it starred Robert Redford. And we on the Soul Phone Project were very excited because it was exactly the same as what we were doing. Uh, the top scientists in the world had just proved life after death, Robert Redford. 
and where they went with this was horrifying. We had waited so long to watch this, and they had lots of people around the world dying by suicide or their bodies. Because they and knew there was something on the other side. They weren't happy here on Earth. They were imbalanced, and rather than work to get balanced, they took the way out. So, yeah, we hope people don't as well. And it's important, and this is part of what I deal with in Radiant Wellness. I mean, some of the commonly prescribed drugs have as their side effects, and the FDA requires a black box warning, homicidal and suicidal ideation and behavior. So, my God, what's that about? Why should those kind of drugs be available out there? So people have to watch out for that. Yeah. Yeah, I just looked up a quote. To get a human body is a rare thing. Make full use of it. There are four million kinds of lives which a soul can gather. After that, one gets a chance to be human, to get a human body. Therefore, one should not waste this chance. Every second in human life is very valuable. If you don't value this, then you'll have nothing in hand, and you will weep in the end. Because you are human, God has given you the power to think and decide what is good and bad. Therefore, you can do the best possible action. You should never consider yourself weak or a fallen creature. Whatever may have happened to you, happened up till now, may be because you didn't know. But now be careful. After getting a human body, if you don't reach God, then you have sold a diamond at the price of spinach. What a great line. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, good. Yeah, good one. You're such a lover of knowledge, Rick. I'm impressed. Well, so are you, man. I mean, you know, we've both been devo- devoting our lives to this stuff in our respective ways. Yeah, and I would encourage listeners, viewers, to to follow their bliss. I mean, you and I know how good it feels when we're doing this uh, to reach some others, help some others. And likewise, that's available for all people. So, again, there's an article on my website, soulproof.com, about how to identify and fulfill your soul's missions and accompanying audio product. And these are like $15 or $13, not much at all, where I use deep hypnosis or relaxation where a person can go within and consider what what are some of the clues, signs that point to why I'm here in this time and place. That makes such a difference, as you know, when you're doing it even a little bit versus the existential malaise that some people experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what can we say by way of conclusion so that, you know, people can sort of have an overview of how they might plug into what you're doing? I would say educate yourself about what's out there. Uh, the the website, by the way, for the Soul Phone Project is soulphone.org mm-hmm. and lots of articles and pages. There's a Soul Phone update um, has a link to the abstract for Dr. one of Dr. Schwartz's articles, sciencedirect.com. And then if you type in Dr. Gary Schwartz, uh, you'll see the abstract. So first of all, people can educate themselves about all the evidence that's out there. Secondly, on my website, soulproof.com, lots of free articles, newsletters, Radio interviews I did with some of the people we mentioned, Raymond Moody, Brian Weiss, Michael Newton, Wayne Dyer, etc. So there are a lot of resources out there you can use to educate yourself, prepare yourself, 
So no matter what you're going through, you can make it better, you can understand it, and make your life a work of art. Okay, and then in terms of participating, a person can actually get involved uh, in a supportive way with the uh, Soul Phone Foundation, right? Um, Yes, we have a number of membership levels, starting with $5 a month contribution. Mm -hmm. And those people receive a free copy of the Greater Reality Living ebook, as well as the newsletters. And then each level, $10 a month, $20 a month, goes up uh, to finally a, a five or $10,000 one-time donation, free readings with mediums, uh, free admission to two events we'll be doing early next year, which we can talk about seed events and hope sessions, having lunch with Dr. Schwartz and a tour of the lab, all of our books and audio products so uh, people can visit the website soulphone.org slash get involved mm-hmm. to see the level of memberships and all the gifts that go with that. Okay. And obviously, a lot of the stuff you've been talking about involves equipment that is very expensive and people working full-time to do this. So you're not just buying uh, gold-plated Cadillacs or anything. You, you, <laughs> you know, it takes money to support all this all this work. And yeah, actually, are- actually today uh, we have 20 wonderful volunteers for the foundation mm-hmm. who – Help me with PR, social media, IT, project manager, etc. They don't receive a cent. I've been working on this for four years, probably averaging 40 hours a week, maybe 50. Haven't received a penny. Nor has Dr. Schwartz and his wife, Rhonda, who's one the head evidential medium. Uh, now, he has his professor salary, but they have not made a penny. They've spent lots of their money and time. Hmm on this project over the last 12 years. So, yeah, nobody's how do you, made How do you support on. yourself? Well, through donations from visionary people. You personally, you say you haven't made a penny. How do you manage to pay the rent? <laughs> oh, I have my uh, holistic practice. I have an associate uh, that I own, so I make my finance. I, and I still work eight hours a week. Um, so, yeah, it's a blessing that I have that yeah. so that I can spend all this time. But we've had donors over the years just when we we're kind of like, okay, we can't go further. We've hit a brick wall as far as funding, and then somebody will donate $50,000 and allows us to go for a few more months. So we have a underlying assumption that all this is unfolding in the right time and the right way with the right people. And we bow to the wisdom of the universe uh, because we are told that the soul phone project is just a small part of a greater plan and design. And so we honor that. And when we uh, run into uh, walls, we just say, okay, time to take a break, you know, time to be patient. Well, you know, all these people I interview and have been for all these years and people like yourself. And if you think of it, there's this sort of, visualize it there's this sort of golden indra's net kind of a network around the world of all these people pursuing spiritual development in in various ways that are suitable or appropriate for their their you know personal makeup and and capabilities and it's just kind of unprecedented i mean people have always been interested in this kind of thing but the confluence of so many 
factors now with our, you know, our, our amazing telecommunications and the way knowledge can disseminate around the world in, instantaneously and the, the dire need uh, of the world for some sort of solution to problems which, if not met, could exterminate life on Earth or at least human life. All this is coming together at a very critical time, I think. And so anyone who's making efforts along these lines is part of a a very important enterprise. And we're all like team members on one big team, each playing different positions. Yeah, and at the same time, we need to remember the big picture. I heard uh, Swami Rama speak years ago. He founded the Himalayan Institute and um, at a Sufi conference in Asheville. And someone asked, well... What about if the world ends? And I was sitting very close to him, and he just, he kind of smiled, you know, kind of like the smile of, what's the term for the Buddha? Unbearable compassion. And this little smile, and he said, your world might end, but mine cannot. Good and point. so it's important that we define our world and ourselves in larger terms so that, yeah, we do everything we can to help many people and turn our world around. However, if it does, you know, blow up or, or human race is exterminated, life goes on, you know, maybe that's part of what needed to happen to wake up a bunch of people. Oh, man, we screwed up. We don't want to do that again. Uh, so it, it's that it's, it's been described as walking on a razor's edge. You love, you care, you do everything you can. At the same time, you know, the universe is perfect right now. Yeah, there's a verse in the Gita, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. So you do the best you can in the field of action, and then you accept the fruits of action as not anything that was actually in your hands. But a lot is invested in the development of a planet like this. When you think of how many stars had to live and die before we even had enough heavy elements to make a planet and to make our bodies and all the, the billions of years of evolution that it's taken, you know, so it'd be a shame to see us blow it to bits or overheat it to the point of extinction. I think it's well within the, the realm of possibility that we could establish quite a heavenly existence on Earth. I opt to, to strive for that. Me too. I love books and movies that end with happy endings. I don't like tragedies. All right. Well, I guess that's a happy ending. We can just end on that note, I suppose. I will be putting up a page on batgap.com with links to your several different websites. I've already put the page together. I'll, I'll post it. People can get in touch with you through your those websites and find out more about everything you've talked about today. So, so thanks, Mark. Well thank, well, thank you for sharing all this and all the great work you're doing, Rick. You're very much welcome. It's a pleasure. To those who've been listening or watching, thanks for doing that. And um, come to batgap.com and check out the menus, and you'll find a number of things that might interest you, um, such as, I don't know, the audio podcast or various ways in which the past interviews have been indexed. You can sign up to be notified by email of, of new interviews as they come out. And also, if you're just watching this on YouTube, you might want to subscribe to the channel. I think we're up to 60-something thousand subscribers now and um, every once in a while I have some problem on YouTube that I need to figure out and you can't get much help from them but I believe you've reached the hundred thousand mark in terms of um, 
subscribers, they assign somebody as a contact to you that you can you can turn to if you have some difficulty. So uh, it'd be a nice goal. I wouldn't mind hitting the 100,000 mark to see if that's true. <laughs> so please subscribe if you feel like it. All right. Thanks, Mark. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care now. Yeah, you too. Enjoy it. Keep up the good work.